You're listening to the Ikra Book Festival 2021, bringing you fresh and innovative content in literature and authorship. Brought to you by the Art and Radio Ramadan 365. Hello there, everyone. Hi, I hope you are enjoying yourselves. We've had so many amazing interviews thus far. I think what we'll do now is move on to our next session. We're needing the end, so refill your teas, coffees, whatever, sell in for the next interview, um, which will be led by Tariq Khan. Tariq Khan is a master mariner in the Merchant Navy. He has travelled to all the uninhabited continents of the world and enjoys watching documentaries and listening to music. So Tariq Khan, I will give it over to you, hand over it to you. Hi, thank you very much, Aksa. And uh, I'd like to start with introducing Tim McIntosh-Smith. Ladies and gentlemen, today I have the honor of interviewing Tim McIntosh-Smith in person, albeit on this occasion it is being done virtually. Tim was born in England and attended Oxford where he read classical Arabic. He lives in Sana'a in Yemen where he moved to in the early 1980s and now considers Yemen as his home. Currently he is in Oman from where he joins us. Tim has won several awards and has been described as the Sage of Sana. Travels with a Tangerine is part one of a trilogy of books written on the journeys made by Tim while closely following, where possible, in the footsteps of Ibn Battuta, the famous 14th century Moroccan traveler. Other books in the trilogy include The Hall of a Thousand Columns, Landfalls on the Edge of Islam with Ibn Battuta. Further books that he has written include Arabs, a 3,000-year history of peoples, tribes, and empires. Yemen travels in dictionary land, Bloodstone, and he has also edited the travels of Ibn Battuta. Travels with a Tangerine has been written brilliantly, and one of the things that immediately catches the attention of the reader is the depth and sophistication with which Tim captures in words intricate details of a building, an object, a scenery, or features of a person. If a picture is worth a thousand words, then after reading this book, it would be true to say his words are worth a thousand pictures. After nearly 700 years, the trilogy of books will most certainly act as booster rockets to propel Ibn Patuta's name into the future for many centuries to come. Some reviewers of his book have tried to cage him to be a travel writer. However, this is not the case. As his depth of knowledge of Arab history, its culture and language, clearly show him to be, in his own right, an Arab scholar and historian. His sense of humor, which is dotted across the book, makes the read most enjoyable. And I would like to give a tip to those setting out in their early days of reading to read this book. They should do so with a trusted dictionary by their side. Such is the vibrance of his writings par excellence. Welcome, Tim. Thank you very much for being part of this book festival. Captain Tariq. Uh, I, should, I should call you Captain Tariq. Um, it, we're meeting for the first time now, but it's a great honor. And, Thank you. Uh, I'm, I'm very envious of you going to so many places by sea. Um, it, it, it gives a sort of proper perspective on the earth. And, and um, I wish I had had as much time as Ibn Battuta had in his 30-year-plus travels. Um, and of course, he went to a lot of places by sea. I cheated. I went by air to a lot of places. But um, thank you for your generous introduction. Uh, uh, thank you particularly for 
saying about words um, being worth a lot of pictures. Uh, and this really strikes a chord with me because a lot of my travels, I didn't really uh, take a camera or certainly not these newfangled cameras that you just point and snap. Um, sometimes I had an old Roliflex, sometimes I had a very old Pentax. And to be honest, they were a lot of bother taking pictures. So I had to write notes. So what I saw was going straight into words. Uh, and I was trying to paint these pictures with words. Uh, and, and for you to pull that out, it means a lot to me. Thank you very much on our first meeting like this. You're most welcome, uh, Tim. I've really enjoyed reading your book. It was a very good read. And you yourself has mentioned in one of your interviews, it's quite a dense book to read. Hmm. And really, I really enjoyed it. So uh, can I ask, uh, since the book is more than just in the footsteps of Ibn Baduta, it's more of your experience on this trip that you made. It's, it's, it's a lot to do with that, your own personal experience, plus you have given the history. Uh, you have brilliantly written the history of that area, the Sufis, that you, the Sufi tombs that you went to. And uh, it was done all brilliantly. So before we start, I will request if you can introduce your book, The Travels with a Tangerine, and read a couple of passages of your talk. Yes, it's, um, it's always difficult to read things to give a kind of um, a feel of the whole book. Uh, but I, I picked out one little bit. What I'm trying to do in Travels with a Tangerine and with the other two books, which are my own travel books, following Ibn Battuta, it's really this. Um, if you think of the three dimensions, up, down, straight, whatever they are, the physical dimensions, and then the fourth dimension as time, as a lot of people often think it is. If you can strip away those, those three physical dimensions, um, the, the, the sort of, um, uh, those of place uh, and movement, and revisit places that somebody was in a long time ago and put yourself exactly in the same position as he or she was in all that time ago, then in effect, you're just dealing with that one dimension of time. And you're hoping and praying and you're sometimes being blessed with, with a sort of ability to cross time. Um, perhaps the best example is uh, it's uh, uh, not from Travels with a Tangerine, it's from the, the next book, where Ibn Battuta in um, India, uh, the book is called, uh, as you say, Hall, The Hall of a Thousand Columns. He, he talks about witnessing a sati ceremony where the widow of a, war of a warrior burned herself to death. And to cut a long story short, I found the exact spot in... Um, uh, Madhya Pradesh, and it was a very, very secluded place in, in the middle of India where, where nobody really went, the tourists never went there, outsiders never went there, but the spot was exactly the same. Uh, even to the extent that Ibn Battuta wrote 650 years ago, that you walked down a track and you got to a place, a sort of hollow place with much water and many trees uh, and there against a stone was the place where they burned her. Uh, and there I was in this place with much water and many trees, and there was the stone, and it still bore the, the marks of a fire against it. Now, I'm not complaining. God is the one who knows 
whether these were ancient fire marks, but for a, a second or, or an instant, I was standing in his shoes there. And, and that fourth dimension of time melted away. Um, it's, it, it's difficult to put into words. You probably know this being a, a, a mariner yourself, but you know sometimes if you're on the water and you've got a, a horizon in front of you and behind you, you've got the wake of the ship, you're yeah. sort of suspended in a moment outside time. And you can go looking for these points in time, uh, but more often they come to you without trying to find them. So that's really what my, my books are about. They're travel books, but the point of the travel, if you like, and I've never thought of it this, this way before, is to strip away time and to be the nearest you can get to a time machine, to get back to this, this guy, this, this Muslim traveler from Morocco 650, 60, 70 years ago. And that's really what I'm trying to do. And I thought, uh, going back to Travels with the Tangerine, the first book in the trilogy, uh, as you mentioned, a, a, lot of, in a, a lot of his travels, particularly in the old Islamic world, Ibn Battuta talked about um, uh, Sufis, Sufi sheikhs visiting living sheikhs and sometimes the tombs of dead ones, visiting... Um, what uh, in Egypt you would call dhikr, uh, um, in, in the Turkic world, sama, sama uh, in Arabic, the, the sessions where the Sufis get together yeah. uh, and, and, um, and um, remember the name of God. And, and this is a description of one where I was in Konya in, in Turkey, uh, in Anatolia, famously the center of um, Mevlevi, um, the Mevlevi order of dervishes, the so-called whir whirling dervishes. Um, Ibn Battuta mentions them. He mentions going to sessions, sema sessions. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and I went to one. And it wasn't a sort of touristic one. Sometimes they do it, they, they go traveling and take the whirling dancers for, 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 for cultural events or they put them on for tourists. This was very much sort of the real thing. Uh, um, and it was. It took place at the headquarters of uh, a, a particular group called the Mevlevi Qadri, Mevlevi Qadri in Arabic, um, Sufis. And, and their, their sheikh was a, a gentleman called Haji Baba, very interesting man. He he was a very sort of ordinary man who had suffered a great tragedy, and somehow this great tragedy propelled him to become. A very, very spiritual man. Anyway, I must read. Um, so we're at, at the Sema in Konya in Turkey. Um, it's just started, really. The Sema goers intoned the Islamic creed, then other phrases, which ended on the long glissando syllable. Ooh. As it died away, they prostrated themselves. Some sobbed. I noticed... Haji Baba give a sign and two drums began to beat insistently. The whole room chanted, La ilaha illallah, La ilaha illallah. Faster and faster it went. Then an almost imperceptible sign from Haji Baba and the rhythm changed and the chant to a simple Allah, 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 Allah. The men rocked forwards and backwards and forwards. 
a youth opposite me snatched dress, breaths between Allah's with loud sobs and gulps and sweat flew from him. He seemed on the verge of hyperventilation, of collapse. And I thought of Ibn Battuta's Shrieker, as he called him, a dervish of Bursa who had died of ecstasy. And still the intensity increased. Just this side of frenzy, the two elder dancers appeared. They crossed the room on their knees and kissed Haji Baba's hand. He stroked their faces. Then they rose and began to turn, pirouetting on the left foot and propelled by the right, which rose and fell in time with the drums. As their speed increased, their skirts billowed out and became perfect cones of white. Their arms were outstretched, right palm upwards, left downwards. I knew from my reading on the dervishes that their hands were meant to transmit barakah from heaven to earth, rather like spiritual lightning conductors. Books, however, had not prepared me for what now took place. A gradual emptying of the mind of everything but these two revolving figures, cycle and epicycle, and that deafening throb, Allah, 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 the great iamba the music of the spheres. Eventually the dancers retired, kissing once more the hand of their conductor, and others came on, prosaic mystics, in trousers and sweat-stained shirts. The last to dance was a youth I had seen robing earlier. In seconds he was a conic blur, weightless, on the point of levitation. Thus he remained, time in suspense, until at last Haji Baba nodded to the drummers and the rhythm slowed. The corolla of skirts folded, the heartbeat became still. In the silence and acrid sweet stink of sweat, someone began to recite from the Quran. I looked from face to face around the room and remembered that Ibn Battuta had described this very scene and such voices, I quoted, Voices that work upon men's souls, and at which hearts are humbled, skins creep, and eyes fill with tears. The recitation began, Hamim Ein Sin Kaf. Thus Allah, the Mighty One, the Wise One, inspires you as he inspires others before you. When the reading finished, Haji Baba turned to me and asked how I felt after the catharsis of the Saman. I could only honestly say that I felt empty. Then he said very quietly, with what will you fill this emptiness? That's, it's a question that we must all ask ourselves, I think. Exactly. Um, I, I, some of the, uh, the things in your uh, description of, of structures and uh, like when you visited the tomb of Sultan Abul Hassan, and, and you, you went to the, the pond where there were the eels. The, and, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so you, you mentioned that. And uh, the way you described it was absolutely fantastic. And uh, when you also went to the Armenian monastery in the Serb of Kach, uh, that mm. was another one very well, very well described and very well done. It, so, it, it, it really took me to some very strange places. I mean, that was in the middle of a forest in the Crimea, that, that Armenian monastery, yeah. Sorry, Captain. No, no, no. That's uh, that's. It's, it's you. You have to tell us about your book. And it's, uh, <laughs> All right, okay. <laughs> it's, it's, not, so I, I, it's been really a, a great read. 
So just moving on a little bit, uh, how did you become, uh, have a passion for Arabic? And uh, how did you end up being an Arabist? Uh, well, to give a short answer, it was because I was bored with Latin and Greek. Um, I, I went to the sort of school where, uh, thank, good, thank goodness, they, they taught us Latin and Greek from an early age. Um, and, it, uh, you know, I really believe strongly that those languages give you a good, uh, a good sort of basis for a lot of things. Um, and, um, yeah, another long story cut, cut short, I went to Oxford to, to study um, Egyptology. And then I thought, oh, I'm placing myself in rather a cul-de-sac. Um, not, not many jobs demand you to, to know hieroglyphics. So I went for the safe option and went back to Latin and Greek. And then after a year or so, I thought, I've been doing this for 10 or 12 years already. There's not a lot new that I can say or think or do. Um, and I want a real challenge. And um, really, I, don't, I sort of went for Arabic as, as being a, an amazingly interesting and challenging language. And that was the reason that you ended up in Yemen for the last nearly 40 years? Yes. Um, and... Um, yeah, Yemen, dear, beloved, much loved Yemen. I, I've, I've been away from it for a couple of years, but as you rightly said, I still regard myself as living there. I've got a house there and my library is there and, um, and uh, plenty of loved ones are there. And home is where the heart is and home is also where the library is in my case. And in my case, the library is in Sana'a. So I, uh, even though it's, it's a bit... Um, a bit tricky to go back at the moment. Um, that's indeed where I live, though I speak to you from Muscat. Yeah, but why, why did I go to Yemen, you might wonder? Yeah, um, yeah. Partly because I knew that I would have to speak Arabic there. It, it's, it's possibly the Arabic-speaking country which is least affected by English and other languages and outside influences. Um, uh, it was then back in the early 80s, and it, and it still is now, I, I, I suppose. Um, also, thinking back, there was a wonderful event back in the 1970s. I don't know, do you, you might remember it yourself, perhaps you won't, called the Festival of Islam. Yeah, I've, I've read about it. I've, I wasn't here in the UK at that time, so I wouldn't remember it. Okay, so, yeah, it know. was actually, uh, well, it's showing my age. Um, yeah. Uh, that uh, I suppose I was a teenager. Um, it must have been 1974, 75. And as part of this festival of Islam, they had this wonderful mock-up of the Sana'a Souk in, in the Museum of Mankind. Um, and it was amazing. It was just like being in the real place with all the smells and the sounds. And, um, and uh, I suppose I was impressionable. And I thought, oh, one day I must go there. And I did, and I liked it, and I never left. And I really haven't left now. I didn't have to leave or anything, but um, a couple of the the young people in the family I'm close to, we wanted them to study abroad, so I went to sort of help them along. Okay. Um, in your book, you have stated that you, I read someplace in one of your, in the uh, Travels with the Tangerine, you mentioned that, you are obsessed, or you are obsessed with Ibn Battuta. 
Okay, that's it's in somewhere in, in your book you have written that. So why choose Ibn Battuta and write then end up writing a trilogy of books, in three very very good books. I think it's because he's like he's a very rare thing. He's a, he's a sort of a real and fully rounded character who comes across uh, really quite a number of centuries. So you know he lived in the 14th century, but when you read his book, uh, you're confronted by a sort of real person with, with if you like, with warts and all. You know he's there in all his detail. Um, he he he's in a sense. He's quite a naive person. Uh, he doesn't try to, he does sometimes try to project a persona of being a, you know, a great Qadi and a great faqih and scholar and going out and meeting these people across the world. But at heart, he's, he, he's quite an ordinary guy. And his contemporaries certainly thought this of him. Um, uh, there was a, who was it? Um, Abu Barakat al-Balafiqi, who was a Spanish contemporary, met him and he thought, oh, oh, this guy doesn't know anything about anything. You know, he's a bit of a charlatan. Um, but in fact, he wasn't a charlatan. He, 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 um, he was an extremely genuine person in that he revealed his, his, his feelings at every step. And, um, well, going back, for, for instance, to that sati ceremony, um, he, he says that when the, the woman leapt upon the funeral pyre, he said he was so shocked uh, that uh, he almost fell off his horse and his companions had to hold him on it and they had to sprinkle water on him. And you can see the details. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, he, he's, he's very much not a hero. Uh, Arab sort of TV, uh, Arabic TV reconstructions of what... Uh, Ibn Battuta must must have been like they, or they think that, that that he's the sort of great traveler, you know, going across into the sunset. Um, but no, he was really quite a quite a wimp. Sometimes, you know, he didn't like walking very far. Uh, here in Oman, where I'm speaking to you from, he did quite a short walk at one point, which I've done myself, and he said, "Oh, it." It was such difficult going that the blood came out from under my toenails. And, you know, you generally don't get this in works of literature, uh, works of medieval Arabic literature, because everyone's trying desperately to present a persona. Um, and yet, you know, he had this side to him which was very soft and very touching and very, and he had this great faith. In, in the prayers, you know, the dua of, of, of a, a mashaykh, a, 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 a of the, the sheikhs of, this, of the Sufis, that their prayers were answered. And um, yeah, he's a very fully rounded human being. And that's really what attracted me to him. That's, 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 so when, when we look at, uh, you know, you, you said in your book that you were introduced to Ibn Battuta, who was sitting on a shelf in the Greater Yemen bookshop. <laughs> okay, I, I really yeah. like that. It, I really like yeah. that way, the way you put it. Do you feel meeting him was a blessing in time for you because he became your companion on your journeys nearly seven hundred years apart? It, it it was a blessing, and it was it was almost as if it was um, 
um, directed by God. Uh, well, I mean, everything's directed by God, of course, but um, it, it, it seemed to be so directed, directly directed. I remember taking, getting that book off the shelf, getting Ibn Battuta off the shelf, um, yeah. taking him home, and then um, there was a knock on my door and, and somebody came around. It's an old friend, Dr. Dr. Hassan. Um, and um, he said, oh, what are you reading? And he took the book from my hands and, and he just happened to open it. It's a bit where uh, Ibn Battuta was staying with the Sultan of Yemen at the time called Al-Mujahid. Um, now Hassan, Dr. Hassan, my old mate, uh, comes from a family, they have two surnames, one is Al-Mujahid and the other is a Shemahi, uh, but the Al-Mujahid, it shows I've never thought of it. Hassan, my, my friend, was descended directly from the person that uh, Ibn Battuta stayed with 670 years before in Yemen. Yeah. And, you know, there's Hassan in front of me. Um, all right, we've all got to be descended from someone, but it seemed too much of a coincidence. And it seemed that um, uh, fate or God had, had, had sort of brought the two of us together, Ibn Battuta and me. You, you in your book, uh, you actually, you on your in your travels, you kept the uh, travel log of Ibn Battuta with you, and I see that you in 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 several places you mentioned I, you took out the travel log and read through it, and it, basically you were trying to refresh your memory. Uh, where you were at that time, or where he would have been at that time. So yes. it's uh, you know. So you basically you had the Rehala or or a con condensed version with you at that time. Yes, and uh, you, you you can actually use it as a guidebook. Um, uh, uh, one 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 example that springs to mind. I was in a place in in Turkey in uh, Anatolia called. Um, Oh, he calls it in Arabic Akridur. Uh, it's Eridir, I think, in Turkish, um, or Eirdir, maybe. And he talks about going into a mosque there, which was newly built when he was there. And um, and he said, uh, "Oh, and when you go in, in front of you, there's this unusual platform with three wooden stages, and there is where the Quran readers sit." And I, and I remember walking into this mosque with my nose stuck in this book. Uh, and I looked up, oh, and there's the platform, it's still there. You know, a piece of furniture which has remained in the same spot for, um, in that case, again, 660, 670 odd, odd years. So um, it's remarkable crossings of where time just melts away. Uh, and, and, and in a sense, it's why my books are, or right, they're classed, as you said, as travel books, but with really their books about time. Yeah, I am. I have a question for that later on for you. Uh -huh. <laughs> <Later on. laughs> uh, in fact, it's going to become. It's going to be the uh, question very soon. When you started to write the trilogy in your mind, now this is something that I, I just wanted to have a little bit more tell the audience. Who was the intended audience for you? What, who were you aiming it for? You were you? I think it was my father, actually. Okay. <laughs> Allah Hammer, God have mercy on his soul, who was already dead by then. Um, but, you know, in a, 
in the sense, my 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 dad was such a kind of funny old. Um, he he loved words and he loved books and he loved travel books and he had quite a good library of old travel books and sort of funny things, unexpected things. And he was he was crazy about puns and word jokes and everything else. It's, as you know, it's rubbed off on me. And um, certainly, my first book, which is about Yemen, I I um, I kind of wrote with him in in mind. Um, and it came out actually just before he died. And I remember very proudly presenting him with a copy uh, and, and saying, oh, you know, Dad, here's my book. Um, and, and he said, um, he said, oh, you have excited me too much. Go to your mother. <laughs> so, but in a sense, he, he's my, kind of my ideal reader. Um, but, you know, obviously I, I hope that other people would, would read the book and indeed buy it. Um, anyone who's interested in, I suppose, in the in in the Islamic world, but because Ibn Battuta is is such a a great vehicle. He's a traveller, but he himself is also a vehicle for explaining this 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 wonderful spreading world. Um, Something I've tried in my in my in that history of mine you mentioned Arabs um, is to talk about the you know the great conquests that happened in the century or two after Islam, but also to say that there was this sort of soft period of soft conquest where Islam was traveling through and around the Indian Ocean, um, and it became very much a waterborne phenomenon. And you had this this sort of um, great crescent of Islamic civilization from what's now the south of Tanzania right around to, um, I suppose, Java in Indonesia uh, and, and all places in between. And, and, and these are all the places that Ibn Battuta goes to. And he was, if you like, he was surfing this wave of, of expansion of Islam. Um, this, this wonderful sort of domino effect of, of, of influences going from the Arab world to the um, Indo, uh, um, uh, the, the, yeah, the Indo-Persian world and then on to when um, the Sultanate of Malacca just a bit before that was Islamized. So, so it's, it's, he is a great vehicle for presenting actually quite a lot of history and culture about Islam. And, and I suppose I was hoping that people interested in that would read it, and, and they have done. Yeah, that it's been, uh, it's been, as I said, it's been an excellent read, and I'm sure the trilogy uh, in the contemporary world, and from what you have written recently, in the last 10, 15 years that you've written these three books, they will really help uh, Ibn Battuta's name to continue, and uh, interest in the Western world uh, will will increase uh, as time passes. I'm sure. Uh, coming to the next question, and this, uh, I'll put it to you. Newsweek has stated that you are you are one of the top ten travel writers of the past century, right? In this is where my hat size grows. Yes. Yeah. I, <laughs> however, I I would like to make it you know hat size even bigger because I really uh, think in Travels with a Tangerine you have narrated and commented on many historical events, and I was really, mm. uh, really impressed, and I was really really enjoyed the history part of it also. 
and uh, events and personalities, the historical events and personality that those are the historical personalities. And with a recent book that you published, Arabs, a 3000 year history of people's tribes and empires. How do you see yourself now and what you would like to do be your legacy as a travel writer, historian? Um, well, when I was working on that history, uh, it's, it's, it's quite a thick book. Um, in fact, it's sitting behind me. But by the way, I do have some of my own books behind me here, not because I'm in, it's, it's a friend's house and, and she just happens to have them on the shelf. I'm not advertising my books, but the, um, uh, I don't know if you can see that the history is actually quite thick. It's 650 pages. And um, as I was writing that in the, you know, in the war in, in, in Yemen, as you know, the missiles were falling around and round about and people I know are getting killed, it was horrible. Uh, and it, it hasn't, it is still horrible. Um, but I kept thinking, God, I'm writing history. I hope, um, I hope, I hope this book will last. And I think it will. But in a sense, yeah, the travel books are also histories. But then, in another sense, somebody once said, I forget who it was, um, it, that in one sense, all books are books of travel. You know, all books take you on a journey. And uh, travel, <laughs> travel books are obviously no exception. Um, but I'm certainly not a travel writer in the sense of, you know, somebody who writes a guidebook or anything. No, no, far from it. And, and as I said before, I write more about time yeah. than space. Yeah, that's, that's, true because that, that, that's how I would like to remember, be, be remembered. All right, I officially announced this as somebody <laughs> who has written about time. Okay, yeah. <laughs> no, but, but, uh, when you uh, hear the word a travel writer, it could, it could be a Thomas Cook magazine sitting on a, you know, uh, and some people have just written a small article yeah. in it. Or Wicker's uh, so World, if you remember yes. that, on the television. Yes, I remember that. Time yes. I've seen <laughs> some of them, yeah. Right, uh, in the in your book, you have mentioned that you were writing notes, and as you, you have been writing notes a lot, all, uh, you know, as you went along, and so to keep your memory fresh, as in, as you just said in earlier at the start of the interview, as I understand it, Ibn Patuta was also keeping travel notes, but he lost it to pirates, and then when it came down to uh, his book being compiled, it was being uh, it was he narrated it and Al Jazeera wrote it, so he scribed it. So having reviewed Al Jazeera's work, um, would you like to just give us a small uh, you know, envisage how different would the travels or Rehala would be if he had actually were written from his own notes that he kept all along? I don't know that it would have been any better, actually. Uh, I think in, in a sense, uh, memory is the best editor. Uh, and sometimes I, you know, I once counted the number of pages of notes uh, that I'd written for, the, for this trilogy, and it was something like 2,430-something, I think. And it, it came to half a million words. And, and sometimes I see this as a kind of millstone around my neck. And when you, when you try to turn that kind of material into a book, you're like a sculptor who's beginning with a big block of stone, and you're... Chip, chip, chipping away until you get to the heart of it. Um, whereas if you're remembering things or if you have lost the notes that you had, like Ibn Battuta, 
um, uh, memory is working as a as an editor, uh, and, and, and it sort of brings the salient things forward and, and makes it into a better book. At the same time, you have to be able to remember the details because it has to be, you know, it has to have enough. Um, very similitude for want of a better word. And I'll give you one example. Um, there's uh, uh, the main old mosque in Mali, the um, capital of the Maldives. Um, ah, have you been to the Maldives? No, I've not had the opportunity to uh -huh. go to the Maldives, no. All right. So you, I've, I've... <laughs> you've done better than me. <laughs> yeah, all right. I was hoping I'd, I'd outdone you in one thing. So, all right. No, I'm, I'm, I'm very... Um, yeah, I've sailed with Maldivian been... crew. I've sailed with Maldivian uh -huh. crew. And, and they, uh, are, they, they are the best, aren't they? Yeah, they are very They're good. They're very good. Yeah. Um, but anyway, in, in the main old mosque in Mali, Ibn Battuta read an inscription, and it said, you know, this mosque was founded in the year blah, 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 by the Sultan so-and-so, son of so-and-so. And it was a strange foreign non-Arabic name. And... Uh, uh, you know, he actually remembered almost photographically, I think he made one small mistake in the name because I could, I, the inscription is still there. I got, yeah. In fact, yeah. the original's in the, in, the, in the National Museum. They did put up a replica in the mosque. But I actually sat there with Ibn Battuta's book and the inscription that he had remembered in front of me. And there was one small mistake in the spelling of the, of the guy's name. Um, and he was remembering that across probably 10 years, uh, not from notes. So he had this wonderful photographic memory. Uh, people's memories were so much better in those days. Yeah. You know, when, when, when people studied, you know, you would study the Sahih of Al-Bukhari and, and, and kind of memorize the whole thing. Um, or, you know, some, some people did, and obviously people mem memorizing the Holy Quran and so on. Um, and so the muscle of memory was much better, and his was fantastically good. Ibn Battuta's um, memory for words and his visual memory was brilliant. So that, together with the editing of forgetting other extraneous details, made it into a good book. I think if he had sheaves of, of notes, uh, it might not have been so good. That could be good. Right, yeah, we're just, we're just getting a message over here. We're shall be running out of time. I, we would like to continue for many more hours with you on this topic. I would really love to, but that's been great. And uh, I really thank you very much for being part well, of this book festival. And uh, thank, thank you, you Captain Tarek, for, for, for interviewing me, for reading my book. And uh, time, time, time. We sort of started with time. We came back to time. We were all suffering from the the time's winged chariot. I think the poet called it, didn't you know? It's always beating down upon us. I wish we could go on as well. Yeah. Um, I do thank too. You. That was a really great session by, by, by both of you. Thank um, you. It was great. It was such an insight, insightful um, view on traveling. Um, I especially enjoyed the journey of Ibn Battuta and his, his influence on your books. For more podcasts, search for RR365 wherever you get your podcasts.